Well, if you're able, I would encourage you to rise as we read Zechariah chapter 11 this morning. Hear the reading of God's word. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And that those who are left to devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly, the lordly price at which I priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Bind our hearts and our minds and our souls. Guide this word to mold and shape your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take a moment with me, if you may, and if you will, and and remember and think back on your childhood. Think back on the things that you enjoyed to do, the things you enjoyed the most. Actually, I want to narrow that a a little bit further, if I could. Think back and think on maybe just one or two things that stick out in your memory and remind you of of just how sweet and, and wonderful life is and could be and what we hope it to be. Probably won't take very long. We all have something that I would imagine comes to our minds fairly quickly. Because deep down inside of us, we all have an understanding. We all have a longing. A longing for something. A longing for things to be made right and good. For things to be true. I remember when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and I, the first time I, I saw the Phantom of the Opera live, And I remember thinking to myself, I'm 13, 14, certainly there's got to be a better basketball game or a football game or a movie on television. Why do I have to get all dressed up and go to see a dumb musical? 
thinking, well, this is really not what I had in mind on a Saturday night or whatever night it was. And so we got all dressed up. And I remember we were walking down into the theater and we, we actually had really good seats fairly close to the stage. And I, I remember actually thinking, well, at least there's that, right? At least we have good seats to whatever is going to happen at this thing that my parents drug me to. I, me- I remember these things very well. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be the worst, most miserable time of my life. And then we sat in our seats, the time came for the performance to begin, and the scene opens up, and there's this old opera house with a, a, shan- a broken chandelier. And there was an auctioneer trying to sell this chandelier, and the auctioneer began to tell the story of, of this broken chandelier. And then the famous lines, the opening lines, really, of, of the Phantom of the Opera, and he says, perhaps we can frighten away the ghost so many years ago with a little illumination, gentlemen. And then the Phantom of the Opera, the notes hit and boom, it just shatters the whole environment and the notes crushes your chest. And right then and then I knew this is completely different and it might actually be better than any basketball game or football game or any movie on television. And it had me captured for, I don't know, two, three hours, however long the Phantom of the Opera encaptured me. The noise, the excitement, the wonder of the opera had me from that moment, and it had me longing. It had me longing for more. I didn't want it to end because it was such an amazing, wonderful display of music and of drama and of acting, and the, 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 the idea of the stage was just unbelievable. I remember just being entranced. I don't think I'll ever forget those opening notes of the Phantom of the Opera the first time I saw it live. Because we long for something beautiful. We long for something more. We long for something incredible. We long for these types of things. And we see these at musicals. We see these at concerts and movies and, and theaters because reality plays a different chord, doesn't it? Reality plays a dissonant chord not a beautiful chord. And we're longing for something more. We're longing because we know that there's something more out there, something better, something more beautiful, something more right, something more wonderful. And this is what draws us in by the arts and the theater and even Phantom of the Opera. And in many ways, Zechariah 11 is doing just that. It's a bit like taking in the Phantom of the Opera, a bit. The prophet Zechariah has been instructed by the Lord to to issue a warning of the Lord to the people of Israel and also the leaders of Israel. He's telling them that the reality that they find themselves in and the reality of the people of the Lord and the reality of the leaders is dire. Follow the Lord. And if you don't, there is death and destruction in your near future. And specifically, a warning to the leaders of the people of Israel. But here in this strangely wonderful chapter, we see a parable acted out. A real-life parable acted out by the prophet Zechariah with the intent for the people of the Lord to long for something more. To long for something more beautiful, more wonderful, more special, more glorious than the dissonant chords of the reality that they find themselves in. And so the prophet takes on the role. He takes on the role of a shepherd, and he fashions two staffs. 
As he played out his role as a shepherd of the people, he, he overtook some of the leaders of the day and he smashed his staff called favor. With the staff now broken and, and after all, that's what a shepherd has, right? Is a staff and a rod. Without the staff and the rod, the shepherd is useless. It's, there's nothing more for him to protect the sheep with or to guide them or to lead them or to bring them to green pastures or quiet waters. And so he breaks it. And he says, I broke this staff and now the covenant between the Lord and His people was broken. The shepherd was no longer the shepherd. And he has no power. But Zechariah continued in this living parable, in this acting out of this parable, of this stage. He took a second staff called union and broke that staff. And he says, now the relationship between Men and men is broken. Between Judah and Israel is now broken. And the Lord says to Zechariah, now you play the part of the foolish shepherd. The kind of shepherd that attempts to protect and to guide and to lead his people without a rod or a staff. That's what we call a fool. And so Zechariah plays the part. There's no comfort now. There's no protection now. The relationship between God and His people is broken. The relationship between Judah and Israel is broken. Everything is broken. And the drama increases. And the musical plays out. But if this is a live action parable, what's the point of the parable? Now remember, this is not the first time that the people of Israel have, have seen a live parable played out in front of them. Think of, think of Jeremiah as he wore a yoke around his neck to show the people the oppression of Babylon that was to come. Or perhaps think of Ezekiel who lay on his side for over a year to symbolize the guilt of the people of Israel. So what is the point? Or perhaps, how would we define a parable? One definition is this, and I'm just going to read quickly. A parable often involves a character who faces a moral dilemma or one who makes a bad decision and then suffers the unintended consequences. Although the meaning of a parable is often not explicitly stated, it is not intended to be hidden or secret, but to be quite straightforward and obvious. And so here, Zechariah is playing out a straightforward and obvious warning of the Lord to his people. Zechariah takes on the role of a shepherd is blatantly pointing out the obvious to the people of God and to the leaders who guide them. The issue at hand, and the question that I have for all of us, because this is the question of Zechariah 11, who do you follow? And what are the consequences of who you follow? And what are the consequences of making the wrong choice? This is the warning of the Lord. It's clear to them and it's clear to us. If we don't follow the Lord God, death and destruction, that is our future. And leaders, the message is even more clear to us. If we lead people, and as leaders, if we lead people, and as parents, as leaders, if we lead our children down this wrong path, the warning and the judgment is harder on us. This is the point of the parable. Who do you follow and who are you leading to follow? Are we leading people to follow the Lord? If we choose to lead the Lord's people away, it leads to death and destruction. 
So, <laughs> the underlying message then is repent, believe, follow. This is the message of Zechariah 11. However, throughout the chapter, there's something that flows just as an undercurrent throughout the entire message. That something is that the, the place is where they find themselves. In Jerusalem, a war-torn city, there's not a lot of beauty. There's not a lot of love going on right now. Pain and, and, and hardship and the tears are flowing. It's in the midst of this city that Zechariah plays out this living parable. But Zechariah, in the middle of that, is pointing to something more. In the middle of the rubble, even as they continue to build the city and rebuild the temple and the wall and the city, there still is heartache. There still is this difficulty. But Zechariah is pointing to something. Pointing to something more beautiful, more glorious, more wonderful, more fantastic than anything you could ever imagine. He's pointing to the Messiah. He's pointing to Jesus Christ. He's creating them a longing for more. A longing for things to be made right. He's creating them a longing for the city to be rebuilt. For the lives to be rebuilt. For everything to be made new. Not the way it is. He's creating in us the same longing. In the sense that I wanted Phantom of the Opera to go on and on and on forever. Because it was just so glorious. This is the sense in which He wants us to, to, to have a longing for Him as well. To want more. To want something more beautiful, more glorious, more wonderful, more satisfying. A longing to see and to know real and tangible ways the impact that the great shepherd of the sheep actually has in our lives here and now today. He's creating this by this dissonance of showing us the worst and pointing to the best. And in this oddly wonderful chapter, tucked in between two chapters of incredible grace and compassion, we're given a bitter pill. A bitter pill of longing. Why? In order that we would understand compassion and grace and love and mercy all that much more. For we're shown the worst, and He's pointing to the best. And He says, this is who you need to follow. So we long for the Shepherd who leads us to green pastures and quiet waters with His staff and His rod. Not with broken staffs and broken relationships, but with something secure and right and good and true. We long for His protection. We long for His promise and we long for His peace. This is an interesting scene change from chapter 10 to chapter 11. In the first three verses of chapter 11, we have really a dirge it's a death song. But it's in contrast to chapter 10. If you have your Bibles open, go and look at chapter 10, verse 7. If you have your app or something like that, what, what does verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 7 say to us? I'm not going to read it exactly, but here's the scene from chapter 10. It's a party. People have had a lot of wine to drink, and we've all been around people that have had a lot of wine to drink. Generally, they're laughing and having a good time, and it's a, it's a party, it's a celebration. This is the scene in chapter 10 because the Lord is compassionate and gracious to His people, and He's going to bring them to Himself. This is chapter 10. And then we go to 11. And it's a stark scene change. It's like the curtain comes on the stage, and we go from this party... to sitting next to someone dying. It's a contrast. 
A stark contrast. From a party to shrills of tears. It's a contrast that Zechariah is trying to point out to us of what we have in Christ. Like we've had a lot of wine to drink and it's a great party. Or as if you know the Phantom of the Opera, we know that the second, that the second um, act begins with masquerade. And it's this wonderful, beautiful song of a party and they're climbing down the stairs and they're dancing and masquerade is the song. And then we go to chapter 11. And there's a death song. It's a contrast between what we have in Christ and what we have in sin and misery. And the contrast is stark. And it's difficult. Because there needs to be a sense of longing. In the first three, three verses of chapter 11 we, have 11, we have this poem or a song, a death song. And there are any number of symbolic meanings that we could talk about. I'm not going to talk about those this morning just because of time. But know that Lebanon and Bashan, these are symbolic of countries from the north that will come and defeat the people of Israel yet once again. Scholars put forth that this could be the Roman army. But what is the message to the people is very clear. Destruction is coming. There's a warning. Follow the Lord. And leaders, lead your people to the Lord. But what I want us to see again is this contrast that takes place. The contrast that has this longing for Jesus. Look at verse 3 with me. Just look at verse 3. There are two sounds. There are two sounds taking place in, chapter, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 11. I like to watch animal shows. Remember when my wife and I were first married, she would tease me that all I watched was sports and animal shows. Pretty much. And not a lot's changed. Still do. I remember being a kid and watching Mutual of Omaha. Right, Mutual of Omaha is a wild kingdom starring, starring Marlon Perkins. And you remember these stories? Each time it would come on, I would be so excited and couldn't wait. And I would hope it would be about lions and cheetahs and tigers. Anything but like ostriches and sparrows. Give me some lions and tigers and bears, these kind of things, right? I like to watch the big cats stalk their prey. Watch, I like to watch them stalk in the savanna grasses. And then, like every Mutual of Omaha episode, it seemed like then they would show the chase, right? The, the lion or the cheetah or the tiger would then chase after some little baby gazelle. And all the girls would be like, my sister would be like, why do you watch this? The gazelle's just going to die. And I was like, I'm rooting for the cat. But why? It was a fascinating scene of life and death. But it wasn't even so much the chase that fascinated me. It wasn't even so much the violence of it all or even the death. It really wasn't. And I don't remember if it was on Mutual of Omaha or not, but there's a scene. And if you know anything about animals or lions or what happens, so usually, just, just so you know, the, the ladies do all the work. Let, let's just acknowledge that for a second. The women do all the hunting. They do all the killing. They do everything. But when they finally take this claim as their own, it's usually one or two lionesses that makes a kill. And then they stand over their prey and they roar. They roar, or essentially they ring the bell and say, dinner time. So the entire pride knows. Dinner's served. Come and get it. They literally stand over their prey and they roar. Now go back to chapter 11, verse 3. What are the two sounds that you hear in chapter 11, verse 3? 
Shepherds are what? They're wailing. And lions are what? Roaring. When do lions roar? For lots of reasons, lions roar. But the lions have just made a kill. When do shepherds cry? When they've lost a sheep. The shepherds have lost their sheep. The lions are roaring. A good shepherd cares for the entirety of the flock and has their flourishing as his primary responsibility. This is not not an indictment on, on leaders necessarily. It's not an indictment on governors or presidents or pastors or bosses. But what it is is that it's this creating this longing for who we need to be and who we want as our leaders. It's a call for us to look to our leaders and see if they are leading with rods and staffs. Not abuse, but ones that protect us and have the good of the flock in mind. Not for gain, not for personal interest, so that we would flourish and that we would know the path to green pastures and quiet waters. So the lions can't attack. And they are to protect us. And we are to protect our children and our families and our churches. It's creating this longing. We have leaders that aren't protecting us and the lions are roaring. What are we doing? Do you see the contrast? Do you see the longing that Zechariah is trying to get us to see? In other words, are our leaders leading in love as the great shepherd of the sheep? Are they leading in grace? Are they leading with humility in the paths of righteousness? Are they resentful or bitter? Are they leading with truth? Are they leading like 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to lead? This thing creates a longing for the protection of the Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. It should stir in us further motivation to pursue Him and heed His call or to hear the whistle that we learned about a couple weeks ago, right? We long for His protection so the lions won't devour us. Promises are often made by leaders, aren't they? We know this. Every politician that we've ever heard promises the world Promises a new kind of flourishing, a new kind of policy, a new kind of vision for the future. Sometimes these are good promises and good visions. Some of them actually even work. Some of them are for our benefit. But there's an interesting promise here that we must see because it speaks into the very nature of what our hearts are actually longing for. It's the promise of unity. This is a promise of unity between ourselves and the Lord and a promise between ourselves, and others. This is where these two weird staffs come into play. Zechariah had two staffs in this parable. Now, I am not sure what it is about naming swords, the likes of Excalibur, or or Narsil, or Sting, but Zechariah had it first. He named his rods, he named his staffs, and he named them odd names. And I'm not even sure why he named them these things, but there's something about naming swords, there's something about naming staffs. I don't know if it's a common practice for a shepherd to name his rod and his staff. It could be, but Zechariah does just that. He names his two staffs. One he named favor, and the other he named union. These staffs then represented the covenant between the Lord and His people and the covenant between people and people. Or in other words, they represented the law. Right? They represented the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. One staff between God and His people, the other staff for the people and people. 
But once again, instead of wielding these staffs as comfort and protection, Zechariah in this parable shatters them as he took 30 pieces of silver for his payment. There's a lot to say about those 30 pieces of silver that we're not going to go into today. That's another sermon for another time and another place. But you, I think you understand the connection a little bit in between those 30 pieces and Judas and all of that. When Jesus was betrayed, the betrayal of the leaders of the day have something to say about that. But I want us to long for something this morning. I want us to long for the things that Zechariah is begging for the people of Israel to long for. I want us to long for the promise, the covenant to be upheld. I want us to long for the life that's being led by the rod and the staff of the great shepherd of the sheep. I want us to long for the promise of the Lord that he says he will be our God and we will be his people. I want us to long for the covenant that is told to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. I want us to long for the covenant that he will set a table before us in the face of our enemies and he will anoint our heads with oil as heirs of the kingdom. I want us to long that our cup would overflow. These are just a few of the promises that the Lord gives us, right? Promises that are kept in the reality that the great shepherd of the sheep promised he will come to live and to die and to rise again. Promises that are kept only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would long for these promises each and every day. That we would live out these promises each and every day. And that we would live in such a way that our confidence is not in kings or kingdoms or princes or princesses or presidents, but long for the King of kings. Because there's so much hurt and pain in our lives. So this morning, friends, hear His call. For his call is not one of tears. For his call is one that rejoices over you with singing. This is his promise to you this morning. And then I want us to long for peace. As we turn our gaze now to the last few verses of this strangely wonderful chapter, we have violence that attacks our senses. The Lord says he's raising up a shepherd who is the worst kind of shepherd. The kind that lets the sheep be destroyed does not look out for the lame, does not look out for the disease, does not look out for the hurting, and lets them suffer and die. This is the worst kind of leader that he defines. And he says to these leaders and to those that allow these leaders to prosper, may the sword strike your right arm and your right eye. Let his arm actually be withered or worthless and decayed from this blow. And oh yeah, I didn't forget about your eye also, right? Because if you can't use your arm and you can't use your eye, you are a worthless soldier. And you're a terrible leader. May this wound blind you and may you never be able to fight to protect your sheep ever again. What kind of army would take that soldier? What kind of country would have that kind of leader? But imagine here of this, but the imagery here is, is one of battle and of terror. It's the prophet's final attempt to show the ludicrous nature of the contrast between a good leadership and poor leadership. The contrast of us longing for the right kind of leader. The kind of leader that leads with grace and mercy and kindness and compassion that leads us to green pastures and quiet waters. The poor leadership is selfish and deserts the flock. The poor leader does not have a care in the world for the poor or the lame or the little ones. These people don't matter to him. 
But where the opposite is true, this is good leadership. A good leader enters into the mess of the flock. And he protects them, cares for them, nourishes them. Or he brings peace to a violent and disrupted flock. He seeks to have his flock flourish in green pastures and quiet waters. Such a contrast then between a battle scene of a guy having his arm chopped off and his eye gouged out and between what we read this morning in Psalm 23 of a kind of a leader who gives us green pastures, quiet waters. What kind of leader do we want? What kind of leader do we need? Once again, who do we follow? This contrast, this longing, is what Zechariah wants us to see. To see side by side this stark difference between the dissonance of sin and misery and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've referenced a number of times this morning, John 10, 14 to 18, but it says these words. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father, this is what we long for. This is who we long for. So here's the thing about the great shepherd of the sheep. He lays down his life only to take it back up again. He lays it down on his own accord. This is what we long for. This is what we should be longing for today. And there's something truly astonishing about this parable of Zechariah as he looks forward to the Messiah. The Messiah is not only the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also what, as Peter says, Peter says these words, For you know that I was not, that was not bought with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. And here's the part that we need to see. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, and Peter ends this statement with, A lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the shepherd and the sheep that we truly long for. This is what we long for today. He is also the Lamb whose blood is wiped over the doorframes of our heart, the doorframes of our souls, the doorframes of our homes. And He's the one that leads us to green pastures. He's the one that leads us to quiet waters. And there's no other way but through this Lamb, the great shepherd of the sheep. Friends, this morning, my prayer for all of us is that our heart longs for Jesus more than anything else, that we would know the great shepherd of the sheep because he's the lamb who was slain. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you have given us yourself, that you are our great shepherd, but that you are also the lamb who was slain. Oh, for that, we give you much praise and much glory. And so, Lord, may you create in us in our hearts a longing for you.
for your love and your grace for us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.